open the Word of God, please, to Matthew chapter 1, actually. We're going to look at... Actually, go, go to chapter 2. Go to chapter 2. We're going to, I'm going to go ahead and read that as we get started, but we'll uh, back up a little bit before we do our exposition. So this is December 10th, 2017. We're 15 days before Christmas. And with that in mind, last Sunday we started a new series. Whoops, let me start the PowerPoint here. Sorry. So many good things to say. Don't know how to start. And I love this graphic here. Uh, we don't know there were three. We don't know that there were kings. We do know they were experts in astronomy. And they saw something that didn't fit in the usual pattern. And probably got some direct divine revelation also to clue them that they needed to go see the Messiah. Uh, but we're going to talk about the, the wise men or the magi uh, today. But... Because we're 15 days away from Christmas, we started a, a mini, three-week mini-series on Christmas. We're going to get you guys prepared for Christmas Eve service, Christmas Eve morning service when James will uh, teach about Christmas from Mark. But last week we looked at Christmas according to Luke, and today we're going to look at Christmas according to Matthew. And Lord willing, we'll look at Christmas according to the Gospel of John next week. So getting ready for our celebration of Christmas. Um, freedom isn't free. The Bible says that God's too righteous to overlook my sin and your sin uh, and let us into heaven as sinful creatures. Uh, we couldn't pay our own debt. We weren't even, had no equity to do that with and no ability to do it. But where uh, sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And the scripture says that uh, Christ died for the ungodly. He who knew no sin, who committed no sin, was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so we're celebrating uh, his arrival on the human stage so that ultimately he could die for our sins. Last week in Luke, we saw a new baby Jesus was not put in a jewel-encrusted bassinet, but where where did they put the newborn baby Jesus? In a cattle trough. And they wrapped him up like a dead man. And today we're going to see one of the spices, one of the gifts that the wise men bring is myrrh, uh, which was actually used uh, in the embalming process. So you see, you know, fingerprints of God's overall plan. Um, and the principle is freedom isn't free. And when I look at the collage of these service members, all of whom uh, some of us know very well and all of us know about, if not personally, um, we're very much aware of the fact that our active duty military and our peace officers and our firefighters and others uh, sacrifice even their lives you know, to protect us. So let's pray we'll be teachable to, to this portion of God's word, this very Christmas strategic passage, Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Uh, but let's also pray for those who protect and serve us and uh, David Stribling, if you would pray for us in that direction, okay? Thanks, David. Uh, in my never-ending attempt to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, let's look at some Christmas comedy before we dive into our passage. What's the first thing elves learn in school? The alphabet. That's the first thing they learn. Santa Claus is not allowed to go down chimneys anymore. It was declared too dangerous by the Elf and Safety Commission. They're going to get better. <laughs> Two snowmen were talking, then one talk, turned to the other and said, I don't know about you, but I smell carrots. 
man asked his wife what she wanted for Christmas. She said, nothing would make me happier than a big diamond ring, so that year he bought her nothing. <laughs> it's not what they say, it's what they mean. Last week, Christian counselor Doug Strange had to tell a woman who was afraid of Santa Claus that she was claustrophobic. <laughs> and finally, because we spent so much last Christmas this year, Debbie set a limit on how much we could spend on each other, so she decided she can spend no more than $50 on me, and I can spend no more than $5,000 on her. So <laughs> that's what we decided. Yeah, uh, we're going to look at Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Let's say a word about the context here. If you look at your notes there, uh, the first two parts of the Gospel of Matthew emphasize the incarnation of the Messiah of the Jews, who also is the Savior of the world. And the book starts with a genealogy. Now look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, actually. And I know that uh, modern American readers like to use the Evelyn Woods speed-reading dynamics approach on all the biblical genealogies, but they're there as a fast-forward mechanism and also to show you connections. And notice, you know, several weeks ago we walked through the Old Testament. We talked about this foundational promise God made to Abraham that ultimately applies to everybody who believes in Jesus. And then on top of that, we've got the second covenant that God made on top of that foundation slab with his Old Testament Israel called the Mosaic Covenant. And Matthew, who wants to stress that Jesus is the promised Old Testament Savior, who in fact isn't just for the Jews, but he's for the whole world, he says, here's the record of the genealogy, the legal genealogy that proves he qualifies to be this person we're all waiting for, Jesus the Messiah, the son, the descendant in his physical body of King David. The Old Testament said the Messiah would be related to King David. And go back even further than that, he'd be a son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon, etc. Drop down uh, to verse 5. Listing names. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Got a whole book of the Bible about her. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king, King David. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. She was a, she was a bad girl, you know that, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and so on and so on. The kingly line continues. Drop down to verse 16. And Jacob, not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but a different guy named Jacob, was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom? Now in English it just says, by whom? In the Greek text it's by whom, and the whom is a feminine pronoun not uh, a masculine pronoun. And this is a genealogy of legal lineage based on the father. So the father, the legal father of Jesus, Joseph's named, but in the way he writes this, when he says Jacob was the father of Joseph, and Joseph was the father, the legal father of Jesus, he was the husband of Mary, by whom? By Mary, through Mary, not through Joseph, Jesus was born who is the Messiah. So that's pretty cool. Now flip over to verse 18. And you know, we're going to play, you heard Tommy sing uh, Joseph's song, which was written by a guy named Michael Card. And in a few minutes, we're going to look, listen to another song by Michael Card. And I've heard Michael Card himself sing Joseph's song, but nobody sings it better than him. Yeah, 
He just sings it better than anybody else. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, by whom Mary was born Jesus, the virgin conception, virgin birth, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they consummated the relationship, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, last week, Luke gave us some of the details on that. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, when he first heard she was pregnant, and he knew he wasn't the father, he assumed the obvious, was going to just put her away secretly, not make a big deal about it, but he was heartbroken until he got some extra information. You never have enough information to legitimately second-guess God, but boy, it's easy to do that if you're not careful. But when he had considered doing this, he was figuring out the plan to cause the least amount of embarrassment for his fiancée, who obviously had been fooling around, right? That's what it looked like to the eyes. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, descendant of David, Messiah's got to be legally through David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is in is of the Holy Spirit, virgin conception. She will bear a son, not an alien or an angel. The Messiah's got to be a human being and a male, according to Old Testament prophecy. And you shall name him Yeshua. Don't name him Joseph, which is the pattern in most cases. Name him for the father, legal or otherwise. Name him Yeshua, God's Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and we shall call him God with us. And Joseph awoke from his dream and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and went ahead and they uh, legally were married, but they did not physically consummate it. He kept her a virgin until after she gave birth to a son and they called him Yeshua. They called him Jesus. Okay. Wow. Is that awesome stuff there? I got some kind of crazy message on my computer there from Norton Security. I hope if any of you have been, the Russians are trying to hack my computer again. Possibly. And I'm going to have to back out of there real quick. Man, this is why the Apostle Paul never worked with PowerPoint. You know that? That should go away. There we go. Okay. Now, now let's go into our passage. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And uh, let's read it. Now, after. That's really important, Lori. After. Okay. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, we read about that in Luke 2 last week. It was the night of the birth. This is after he was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Magi, experts in the stars and the heavenly bodies, the moon, the planets, the comets, the asteroids, uh, the meteors, that kind of stuff. And they knew quite a bit more than you might think at this point in history. Magi from the east, from Babylon, arrived in Jerusalem, the capital of Judea. That's where the king's going to be, right? They just assume that. If you're going to look for President Trump, you're probably going to go to Washington, D.C., right? It's the first place you'd look. Where is he who has been born, who's not been born to become, but who has been born, boom, because of who he is? He already is, positionally, the king of the Jews. For we saw his star in the east when we were in the east. We saw something that didn't line up, and we've come to worship him. That is the king of the Jews, the baby Jesus. When Herod the king heard all of this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes, the professional religious experts of the Old Testament scriptures and their prophecies. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. He knew it was in there somewhere. He couldn't remember Micah 5.2 said, 
Bethlehem. They said to him, and they knew this instantly, and they would have known this text in Hebrew, uh, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, just six miles downhill all the way due south of here from Jerusalem, for this is what's been written by the prophet Micah in 700 B.C. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my entire people Israel. Then Herod secretly, that is privately, called the Magi together. They had a little secret executive session and determined from them the exact time they first saw that star uh, when they were in Babylon that told them the Messiah had been born. And then he sent them to Bethlehem. It's just six miles away and said, here's what I want you to do, guys. Go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, Report to me so I too may come and worship him. Ooh, people will lie to you. People lie to pastors. They look right in their eyes and they tell us lies. And I found out a long time ago, the reason people give is not necessarily the real reason. It's just the least embarrassing excuse. And I can do that. I've done that too, by the way. So some of these principles I recite a lot. The reason I am so uh, enamored by them is because I'm probably an expert in actually doing them, to say enough. Uh, after hearing the king, hey, they've got the king encouraging them to go. Of course, we know he's wanting to kill the baby Jesus. They went their way, and the star, the aster, this point of light they had seen when they were in the east, shows up again, and it is a point light that is movable. It's not something like a conjunction of Jupiter, Mars, and, and Neptune. It's a point of light that's moving that takes them directly to the place where Jesus was. Uh, and when they saw the star, the aster, something bright in the sky, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they're not going into a stable here, folks. This is after the birth, probably as much as a year later, if not more. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped them, right? They worshipped Mary, the mother of God. Aren't we supposed to worship Mary, the mother of God? She's not the mother of God, and she's not immaculate. She was a sinner, just like she said she was in Luke 1, uh, talking about her salvation in the promised Messiah. Uh, They worshipped him. They worshipped only him. You don't worship anybody but God. He's God in human form. Then opening their treasures, their gifts, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, James reminded me that's the name of a law firm somewhere in New York City, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Right next to We Can Cheat Them and How. You know, it's another law firm. <laughs> and having been warned by God in a dream not to go back to that lying, murderous Herod and identify the location of Jesus, they went back to their own country another way. Wow. Let's look at this thing. First, we're going to see godly, wise men from Babylon. You can find real believers in strange places. Come to Jerusalem to worship Jesus ungodly wise men quote the Old Testament to Herod, but they have no desire to worship Jesus. They just quote their Bible knowledge and go back to their paperwork. Too busy to check it out. So they're too busy to go six miles downhill to see if the Messiah has shown up. Then the godly wise men from Babylon travel from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to find Jesus, and then those guys arrive and worship Jesus. And the story goes on. Uh, But look at verses 1 and 2 again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, some years we go into more detail. I'm just going to just mention in passing that last week we looked at Luke 2, the night of the birth. Today we look at Matthew 2, after the birth, probably a year or more after the birth. 
We saw the incarnation in a manger, in a cattle trough. You wouldn't make it up. Heavenly signals to shepherds. You wouldn't make that up either for reasons we talked about last week. It really happened. And now we're, Julie, a year later, and we are in a house, and we don't have a newborn infant. We have a baby. The terms are used different. Different terms are used in the original text. And we see King Herod plotting. But the big thing to notice about that chart for our purposes right now, Clay, would be it's after the birth, okay? It's after the birth. You can't overemphasize it's after the birth, okay? You know what I mean? It's after the birth. This isn't the same thing. Now, you're going to tell me, well, my Christmas card has a photograph of the first Christmas, and we got shepherds on one side and magi on the other. And Number one, Trey, those are not photographs on your Christmas cards. Those are artist representations, right? And somebody drew that, and that's the popular conception. I know that's in Christmas carols and Christmas cards and stuff like that, but the text clearly distinguishes them, and it doesn't make sense unless you do that. Now, we're in the uh, city known as the House of Bread. That's what Bethlehem means, House of Bread. Uh, nothing important has happened there for a thousand years. It's just a little, tiny little village south of Jerusalem where King David grew up. It had you know, a lot of notoriety for that reason, but uh, you might expect uh, God to want to have the Messiah born in Jerusalem. That makes sense. That's where the temple is. You might want the Messiah to be born in Athens. That's where all the smart people lived, right? You might want uh, the Messiah to be born in Rome. That's where all the power was. doesn't really make sense, humanly speaking, if we're really trying to impress the world so they can really be impressed with what God's doing. God does stuff in way that, ways that makes perfect sense to him that doesn't line up with our categories. So you got to get over constricting God in the box of your ability to comprehend stuff and go with what we know to be true, clear stuff in Scripture, and then trust Him on the other stuff. And somebody once sang multiple times here, when you can't trace His hand, you trust His heart, right? I call that flying on instruments. My dad was drove a drove. He flew a. I guess he drove it when it was on the ground, but he flew a small plane that he owned in, in connection with some of his business stuff, and I got to be his co-pilot. And he got a one-eyed kid with glasses that thick, and I was the co-pilot. Once it gets up there and you learn where the line is on the thing, anybody can fly an airplane. That's not a problem. It's takeoff and landing. And after it gets dark or stormy, and I remember when he took his instruments uh, rating test, you know, you back then you actually put a, sh- a hood on, and you you would... All you could see is the instrument panel. My dad, uh, I didn't go up on that flight because you're not sure he's going to make it, you know. But, uh, yeah, he took his instrument rating, and that was a huge deal. And I thought that was like the most impressive thing ever. And then it turned out on the, you know, Apollo 11 uh, was designed uh, with uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, the first guys that actually landed and then walked on the moon. That was, that, the limb was supposed to land by automatic pilot, the computer, and the computer was just insane. It was like a five buildings in, you know, Houston, you know, trying to communicate this thing. And the, the computer was going to land it. These guys didn't have to worry about landing, even though they're great pilots. But it turned out Neil Armstrong saw that the brilliant computer was going to land them on the side of a crater. I don't know if you heard this story. You can look it up. I'm not making it up. And they almost certainly would have collapsed. So he took over the controls, and he had to look around for a flat area and then he looked at his gauge. They didn't have a whole lot of fuel because they couldn't uh, have excess weight on the whole thing. And he landed with like two seconds to spare. And that's when he said, uh, uh, Houston Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. And at that point, he got the barf bag 
And because uh, that, that would have been scary. But let's put Bethlehem on a map. I mean, it's world famous now for us, but it was seemingly insignificant at the time. Well, that's the other side of the world where the vast majority of people live. And let me show you where Israel is on this. And if you blink, you're going to miss it. That's where all, not Bethlehem, that's Israel. That's the entire land tract of Israel. Do you see that little area that's, that's uh, highlighted there? Now let's, let's uh, expand that. We're not going to say blow it up. Let's expand that. And you know, everybody seems, before you go over there the first time, everybody seems to think, well, that's all desert, it's all flat. But you got the, you know, you got this river flowing the middle, through the middle of the area. You've got to have a valley there. So this is, uh, and good night. You got Mount Hermon just off the map that's 92, uh, 100 feet high and it's solid limestone and snow melt comes through the bottom of that and that's all that water. And Bethlehem is, Jerusalem's on the top of that mountain there and Bethlehem's like right down there, roughly. Now, but I always love that uh, three-dimensional kind of exposure there. But there's the Middle East, and can you find Israel on that map? There it is. But here's the mind-blower. Carol, you ready for this? Let's compare the size of Israel to the size of the 48 states. That's how big Israel is compared to the United States. It is teeny-weeny. It's not the biggest country in the world. It's not the most populous country. It's not the, the one with the most natural resources. You wouldn't necessarily think God would give his people that land track, but that's where it, that's where it's happening. And now this is a biblical map from the first century. Mary and Joseph actually live in Galilee, Nazareth to be exact, exact, but the Messiah is going to be born in, in Bethlehem. So because they're trying to make it look like Jesus fit all the prophecies, they decided to go down there. So that'd be one thing I could check off, right? Is that what happened? Why are they in Bethlehem? Roman tax census. See? Uh, they, they weren't trying to make this stuff fit. It just worked. And there's a modern kind of a schematic of what Israel looks like now. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, as recorded in Luke 2 that we saw last week, uh, your translation may say wise men, but it's one Greek word, magi, which refers to experts in the stars and the heavenly bodies. From the east, the term the east was a technical term for Babylon, now controlled by the Persians, so sometimes the commentaries will say from Persia, but going back ethnically, these people are Babylonians. Uh, and they had seen his star while they were in the east and had come to worship him. Now, you hear people who should know better say these magi, these wise men, were pagan astrologers. There is no motive for pagan astrologers to take all the time and all the money to travel eight or nine hundred miles um, to go to this small little town to wor- ultimately to worship this Jewish baby, unless they believe that Jewish baby was in fact the savior they had been promised in Scripture. How did the Babylonians get Old Testament Scripture? Babylonian captivity. Have you heard about it? Yeah, they had the Scripture, and these people were kind of like uh, Anna and Simeon that we read about Wednesday night a couple, about a month ago. These were people looking for the promised Savior, and they were believing that he had arrived in this person. Now, this is a schematic, you know, of the uh, Fertile Crescent and then go uh, west to the land tract called Israel. But they would have traveled eight or 900 miles. You don't go in a straight line because that's desert. You have to kind of follow where the water is, like we like to say. And here's a schematic of the overall biblical message. 
And we're looking at Old Testament people. The New Testament era doesn't start until after the work of Christ, right? So these folks are living in the Old Testament, but they have a, a scripture that says everybody sins and dies, everybody needs a Savior, and he's coming, and they're convinced that he, in fact, is coming, and that he's come in this person of the baby Jesus. So these are not pagan astrologers. They are Old Testament believers who are astronomers. And the star here is a translation of the Greek term astere, which just means any bright object in the sky. Now today, we differentiate between planets and stars and meteors and stars. But anything bright in the sky could be called by this generic term astere. And I know that uh, a lot of good people, including a lot of good Christians, like to, you know, kind of uh, get their uh, observatories going and kind of type in certain dates, and they see certain uh, supernova happened in 5 B.C. and a conjunction of uh, whatever, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and uh, Neptune happened in 3 B.C., and so it must have been something like that. And I don't think so, because I think you've got to realize whatever this star is, it reappears... And then it is a moving point of light that they follow directly to where the baby Jesus is. And you can't, I mean, last uh, Sunday night, we had uh, men's fellowship at Mike's house. And uh, if if you arrived a little bit early, you could stand in his front uh, yard and see this super moon just barely above the horizon. And it was incredible. Anybody see that? Just it was gigantic and beautiful. But if you if somebody told you there was a pot of gold under that moon, you're going to find it? You keep walking, you're never going to get there, right? They weren't following some uh, natural human body, heavenly body kind of a thing. They were following a point of light here, as we'll see. So I, I see this as a supernatural kind of a thing, kind of like what God did to lead Moses in Israel after they left uh, Egyptian bondage. Uh, by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud, to guide them on their way. And at night, uh, by a pillar of fire, which would have been called an astere. So in the same way God guided Old Testament Israel for 40 years before they took the promised land, I see the same kind of thing here. That's my explanation for the star of Bethlehem. And I don't think you need anything more than that. And I think that lines up with the data. So um, at this point, I'm going to ask David to play this piece of music for us before he starts that. Uh, and I didn't do uh, an exhaustive survey, but other than We Three Kings, I can't think off the top of my head of a lot of songs that talk about the uh, the Magi, or kind of put yourself in their shoes. But uh, Michael Carr, the same guy that wrote uh, Joseph's song, wrote this song called We Will Find Him. And it kind of puts you, you, kind of puts you in their shoes as they're thinking about uh, finding the baby Jesus here in Matthew 2. So we'll play that and then we'll pick up with verse 3 in a minute. Whew! Love that song. Let's move to verses 3 through 6. We've seen godly wise men come to Jerusalem, the capital city, thinking that the king's going to be in the capital city. Now we're going to see ungodly wise men quote the Old Testament but have no desire to look for or to worship uh, the Messiah. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard these out-of-town VIPs are looking around for the new king of the Jews, King Herod, who's very, uh, uh, let's say, paranoid about his power. Historically, that's been proven. Was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together, therefore, the religious experts who could tell him he knew it was in the Old Testament somewhere, but he didn't know where it was. 
chief priests and the scribes of the people inquired of them, uh, what's the Old Testament? What does the Tanakh say about where the Messiah is going to be born? And they knew immediately he's going to be in Bethlehem, just six miles from here. And then they quote Micah 5.2, which was written about 700 B.C. Um, and the Messiah is going to be born in that little town. Nothing exciting has happened there for a thousand years. But that's where he's going to be, King, no doubt about it. So they had the answer, but uh, they obviously go right back to the paperwork and uh, don't do anything with it, right? So uh, knowledge puffs up, Paul talks about. And it's not about uh, intellectual knowledge. It's the mind and the will and the heart. And the Bible isn't the, isn't the pump that pushes your blood around. It's your mind and your will, uh, your intellect and your intentions. And so uh, a lot of these church ladies that uh, are so legalistic, they squeak, you know, that turn off so many average Americans. I think they have a lot of head knowledge, but maybe not a full uh, heart conception of the truth. Uh, again, I think this is the answer to the question, why not Jerusalem, why not Athens, why not Rome? Uh, Jesus is born in Bethlehem because that's what God said would happen. That's where God wanted it to happen. And you wouldn't have picked that location probably, but he did. And he doesn't just give that one Old Testament prophecy. He gives a, dare I say the word, plethora of prophecies uh, that nail down the one person of Jesus Christ. And I think one thing Matthew's trying to emphasize here, he's not making this up, but he's emphasizing, Lindley, the hardness of the hearts of these religious leaders who know the Old Testament backwards and forwards and actually read from right to left. So they literally knew it backwards from our point of view. We don't, you know, if you think about it. Um, but uh, they, they couldn't care less. These guys, uh, these magi have traveled eight or 900 miles and the religious leaders won't, and trust me, they're not going to have to walk. These guys were filthy rich. You know, they're making a lot of money off the religion business. They would have had the best chariots. They would have had Lexus chariots to take them down there. And they're too busy to check it out. So uh, that's that's unfortunate. But uh, that's the way people are. Now let's look at verses 7 through 10. The godly wise men having been given the exact location, travel from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, downhill all the way to find Jesus. Look at verse 7. Then, before they left, Herod has a private meeting with the guys and says, when exactly did you see that star in the wrong place in your star maps? Let me write that date down. And that date would have been probably a year before this event happens because Herod's going to try to kill all the babies from two years and down. I think he probably did a little overkill to make sure he didn't miss it. Uh and so Herod sends them to Bethlehem, sends them, not the religious leaders. Nobody else wants to go. They're too busy uh, keeping the bureaucracy and the status quo, you know, stable. Go and search carefully. I definitely want you to find that baby. And when you found him, send a message back to me so I can come and worship him. And uh, Clay, as you know, that's a lie. There are many lies in the Bible. Thou shalt not surely die. It's one of the first major ones, you know, in Genesis and here's another one. Let me know where Jesus is so I can worship him. Is that is that true? That it's true that's what he said, but it's not true, okay? So you have accurately recorded lies in places like this, okay, Caroline? So there are lies in the Bible in that sense. Uh uh accurately recorded ones. Uh Herod says I want to know where the location is so I can worship, but he really wants to wipe out the baby Jesus. And if you look at verse 16 of this chapter, we're leaving out some details. But in the aftermath of the Magi going back home a different way and not reporting back to him, 
he still sends shock troops to Bethlehem. And it says when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, they didn't come back and report like they sh- he, he told them to. He became enraged and he sent and killed all male children who were in Bethlehem and all of its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time he had determined from the Magi. So you might say, well, it's hard to believe anybody would do that. Herod was one of the most uh, infamous people in all of ancient history as far as willingness to kill people to ensure the status quo. At the top of that chart there is Herod's genealogy. Uh, he actually had ten wives. We just have the five more famous ones on this chart. There are more, you know. Uh, he's still way behind Solomon, though, right? And uh, he dies in 4 B.C. So we know Jesus was born in like 6 B.C., uh, late 6 or early 5 B.C., according to Dr. Honer. But uh, his... Heritage, his influence continued, and most of it was bad. Uh, one of his sons, Herod Antipas, was the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded. And he actually also interacted with Jesus. Remember, uh, they sent uh, Jesus uh, to uh, Anaphas and Caiaphas and then to the Sanhedrin and then to Pilate. And Pilate really didn't want to deal with the problem because he could tell they were ramroding him. So Pilate sent him to Herod the regional leader over Galilee where Jesus was ministering from. And that regional leader, Herod, wasn't Herod the Great. It was Herod's son, one of his sons, Herod Antipas. And this is the guy who interacted with Jesus and then sent him back to Pilate. And so Pilate was unable to dodge that bullet, so to speak. Uh, Another son of uh, Herod, Herod Philip, is referred to just in one little verse because it was his wife that... Herod Antipas, his brother, stole, and John the Baptist said that wasn't nice. You shouldn't steal your brother's wife and go into her. And so he's the reason, you might say, that John the Baptist was arrested and later killed. Herod Agrippa, which is a grandson, was a grandson of Herod the Great, he's the guy in Acts 12 who had the apostle James killed. James was the first apostolic martyr. His brother John was the last apostle to die like 60 years after that and all the apostles uh, were martyred except for possibly John who might have died in old age after being held in a Roman prison for a while and then the good news is watch this you're not trapped by your genetics okay Glenda you're not trapped by your genetics because King Herod was a monster Antipas was a monster Philip wasn't a nice guy either Agrippa was terrible but Herod Agrippa the second is the guy that Paul interacts with in Caesarea at the theater. Many of us have been to that theater uh, to defend the faith in front of him. And Paul shows him great respect, and he, he knows he's a believer in the Old Testament Scriptures. And Agrippa famously says, Stop talking, Paul, because if you keep talking, you're going to persuade even me to be a Christian. Because at least he took the Old Testament passages seriously. And then uh, after Paul is ushered away from that, uh, Agrippa talks to uh, Governor Festus and says, funny thing is, I would have had him released if he hadn't already appealed to Caesar. But he is going to have to go to Caesar now. And that's how the book of Acts ends, Paul going to Rome. So let's look at verses 11 and 12. We've seen godly wise men, the Magi, Babylonian Gentiles, come to Jerusalem to worship their Savior Jesus. Ungodly wise men in the epicenter of Old Testament Judaism, Jerusalem, know the scriptures that say where he'd be born. They know where he is now, but they have no desire to worship him. The Magi make haste to come and find him. Did I, did I, get all, I didn't, 
I didn't go through all verse 7, did I? Let's keep reading. Um, so they sent him to Bethlehem. He sent him to Bethlehem. Herod did and said, when you find him, let me know so I can find him. Verse 9, after hearing the king say that, basically he's vouching for their trip and encouraging them to go, uh, they went their way and the star, the ass stare, which they'd seen when they were in the east, went on before them. It reappears like a pillar of, of fire and it leads them down the road, down the right path to the right little house, not a stable where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. I guess so, because obviously God's blessing and leading there. Now let's go to 11 and 12. The godly wise men arrive and worship. And coming into the house, not the stable, they saw the child, a pideon, not a brephos. Brephos means newborn infant. That's what Luke describes in Luke 2. Pideon refers to an older child, one, 18, one year old, 18 months, something like that. Not quite as old as Sawyer, you know, but he's three. Ugh. Terrible twos, the terrific threes. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll find out. But they go straight uh, to the house. They saw the child, that should be capital C, with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him, not Mary. And they didn't go to Jesus through Mary. They go directly to, to Jesus. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I found this incredible graphic on the Internet. It's amazing what you can find on the Internet, man. And I love this. I, like more than you want to know. I know that uh, Jack and Dale are chemists, so they're going to like all these chemical, looks like organic chemistry all over again here, you know. So, I mean, who in the world would do that? But anyway, that's what gold looks like, at least if you buy it now, you know, from one of those infomercials they have in those little bars. And there's frankincense and there's myrrh. Do you feel edified yet? Uh, uh, obviously, gold is very valuable, and frankincense was actually used in the temple in connection with certain sacrifices and used in homes as incense because most homes in that era smelled a lot like animals, if you know what I mean, for obvious reasons. So to have some incense would have been a rare privilege and get that smell out of your house. And then myrrh was used for a couple reasons, but it was used in embalming dead bodies by the Jews. And some commentators, sometimes they're called hyper-typers, they see types and everything, uh, and some commentators will spend a hundred pages talking about the symbolism of these gifts. And I think the, the myrrh makes a lot of sense, but to what extent the Magi specifically were thinking about these meanings, uh, or not, I'm not sure. But for, for certain, you've got, these would have been all expensive. So these guys, these Magi are giving expensive gifts that would have been readily convertible to cash. Now, how's that going to come into play? Because Mary and Joseph are not going to stay in Bethlehem, and they're not going to go back home to Nazareth. They're going to go to Egypt. They're going to go. They're going to you know be what undocumented aliens, you know, in Egypt for a while. And he may or may not be able to find work in that situation. He's a carpenter, and he could work, but he may be discriminated against and not allowed to work uh, in their status. So they're going to need to support themselves for a year or so. So if nothing else, the gold would have come in handy for that. So that's what's happening there. So they're giving him expensive gifts and gifts that they could have used to finance uh, their trip and uh, what they were going to do afterwards. Now notice in verse 12 it says, uh, and I'm, I think they stayed there, not for five minutes. They may have stayed there five days, but they were there for a while. But before they go back through Jerusalem to report to King Herod, 
They were warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod. So the Magi left for their own country by another way. And here's our original map. Now, this is not an exact uh, route, but for sure, Sonia, rather than going due north through Jerusalem, uh, where somebody would have seen them and dragged them to Herod, they went around the right side. They went around to the east side of the Dead Sea. And based on uh, many hours of historical research and a shaky hand, I'm suggesting it looked like that. So it's harder to use this, that, that, uh, that tool than you think. So I think they went around the Dead Sea for sure, and then from there they kind of took a similar route to get back home. Okay, take this home. Uh, I always like to say that almost everybody realizes the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospel of Matthew was the most Jewish Gospels, written from a, a very much a Jewish background, emphasizing Jesus was the King of the Jews. He qualified to be the Jewish Messiah. A lot of the Old Testament dynamics are stressed, and Jesus fulfills all that stuff. And I always like to say that the most Jewish gospel has a surprise ending, because the last thing Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, the last two verses, are what we call the Great Commission. He tells his Jewish, the Jewish Messiah tells his Jewish disciples to go through all of Israel and let them know he's the Messiah. Now he says, go into all the world, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. Not just to religious people, but to irreligious people. Not just to moral people, but immoral people, like Jesus did. Woman at the well, Nicodemus, Samaritan woman, Jewish people. He didn't care. So I always say that's a surprise ending. But it's really not. Because as early as Matthew 2, the passage we just read, Katie, Matthew's emphasizing, look at these Gentile Babylonian believers that would take a lot of time and expense to find and worship Jesus and look and contrast them to these religious leaders in Jerusalem who wouldn't even go six miles, and they're not going to have to walk again. They're going to be in a Lexus chariot with refreshments. No problem, right? And they, don't, they, they could care less. They're coldly orthodox, you might say. So really, there's no surprise. shouldn't be a big surprise that you see the gospel of Matthew ending with this great commission to go into all the world. Uh, and you know, Paul talks about the gospel is not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And so the real, real meaning of Christmas, uh, I surprised Debbie last night because on one of the cable channels, you can actually, they show a lot of this old vintage television. And I had, I had copied, uh, it would have been the early 60s, middle 60s, the Andy Williams Christmas special. And she was wrapping Christmas gifts for uh, our ever-growing number of grandchildren. And uh, I was looking for, uh, you know, graphics, kind of like that. And then we watched the uh, Andy Williams Christmas special. And, uh, you know, sure enough, uh, according to them, the real meaning of Christmas is get together your family and exchange gifts. And, you know, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, unless we get in a car wreck or something, you know, uh, Christmas morning we'll go to my uh, sister Brenda's house and, and she cooks breakfast for us, and then Grandma buys us all gifts, although Grandma's decided no more gifts for the big kids. I think my inheritance has finally been spent. She no longer has any money anymore. She's going to buy the grandkids stuff, but not me anymore. Uh, but that's what we do, and I, I enjoy that. I'm all for it. But that's not the real meaning of Christmas. The real meaning of Christmas is the babe in the manger was and is the God-man Savior. And these Magi's got that. And they didn't show up until later, once they got the high sign. Uh, but they came as quick as they could. 
And that's what's important about Christmas. You might think of it this way. Instead of giving us stuff like we give each other, God gave us himself. Now, talking about giving us stuff, you know, we got a lot of, James and I both got a lot of nice cards and, and things last week, and we appreciate all of those. But I think one of the ones I liked the best was from uh, the Ward family, and each uh, each group, you know, they have a very diverse group. They've each wrote little comments. But this, the one I liked was uh, from Henry and Clay. Dear Pastor Brad, even though most people don't laugh at your jokes, <laughs> this that's what you said, right? Just know we find them very funny. <laughs> and then uh, you're a drummer, right? Yeah. What's that? Stand up and do that for him. Stand up. So here. What, what is it? What does it say? Uh, did you? It's kind of like a like, yeah. rim shot. Yeah. Joke, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, I, I like that one a lot. <laughs> but let me finish by going to John three sixteen. You know. Uh, the real meaning of Christmas can be found in John 3.16. And really, we tend to read 3.16, but let me read it in context, and I'll finish here in a second. John 3.16, but let's read 14 through 18. Uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus, who thinks he's going to heaven because he's been so religious, and that can't work for anybody, otherwise Jesus wouldn't have died for your sins. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this brass serpent, if they, some of them had been bitten by snakes, and by looking at it, they were cured. Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God the Father, the author of the plan of salvation, so loved the world. What do you know about the world in the Gospel of John? It's a dark, sinful, evil, wicked place. Now, God puts a lot of beautiful things in the physical world, but people will lie to you, they'll steal, they'll rape you, they'll kill you, they'll make atomic bombs and try to drop them on you. God so loved the world. He said, I'm in the world, but not of the world. The world's sinful and dark and separated from God. But God loved the individuals like us in the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, second person of the Trinity, the active agent of the plan of salvation, perfect life, died for our sins, rose again, that everyone who believes in him will not perish, die, go to the lake of fire, but have right now present abiding possession, eternal life. For God the Father did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. He'd already judged the world. He already saw the world as separated from him. But that the world, or at least individuals in it, might be saved through him. The one who believes in him, Jesus, is not judged. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the begotten Son of God. Instead of giving us stuff God gave himself, and the babe in the manger was the God-man Savior. And he's the one who saves. The Baptist Church can't save you. Tanglewood Bible Fellowship can't save you. Being a nice person won't save you. Faith in Jesus Christ can save you. What must I do to be saved? To be saved, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. For by grace, unmerited favor, are you saved through faith, active, receptive trust. Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So that's... Uh, Christmas according to Matthew, really the aftermath of Christmas, and then Lord willing, next week we'll look at Christmas according to John, and we'll think about some key truths that directly relate to uh, the birth and the life of Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer. 
Lord, Father, please put our roots deeper into your word as we think about and relate to and celebrate this Christmas this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.